What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But it gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, everybody. Good morning. Um, as you know, we've got a lot of things happening on this side of the camera. We're trying to keep track of all of it. Um, if you start to see any troubles, let us know. Uh, we're, we're trying to monitor everything. Last time I was preaching, I'm sure you remember the sermon just cut off in the middle. So hopefully we've prayed that that won't happen and uh, that we will uh, be uninterrupted for the rest of the service. I also want to mention that at, last week we did a Q&A at the end of the service. This week, uh, Adam Harris is organizing a group chat, uh, a video chat, and he's going to put the link on the boylston.online.church a uh, little chat screen underneath the video. So be sure to be on there. You can click that link and uh, we'll just have an informal hangout time where we can see each other's faces and we'll see. It's a, it's a trial. We'll see how it goes, but I'm excited about it. I would love to get a chance to have us all be together, even though it's virtually. All right. Well, let's get into it. James 4, 1 through 12. Um, when you love someone, Sometimes you have to tell them hard truths, right? When you love somebody, sometimes you have to sit them down and let them know things they don't want to hear. You need to tell them for their own good. Have you ever had that experience? I'll tell you, by that metric, if that's what love is, well, God has blessed me with a lot of people who love me in my life. Uh, a particular time that stands out in my life was the year before I moved to Boston. I spent a year doing mission work in East Asia, and I was with a group of people who were mostly married couples, and I was still single. And there were two other single women in the group with us. And over the course of that year, I ended up just spending a lot of time with them. And up to this point, for the last few years, I had lived in a house with six other 22-year-old guys. 
And let's just say we were not fully mature adults at that point in our life. During that season of my life, it seemed like every week these two women on the team would sit me down and they would tell me just how much of a jerk I was. You know, at the time I was, I was pretty sarcastic. I rarely took things seriously. And things that I thought were funny, uh, they just weren't. They hurt people's feelings. Now, some people will tell you I haven't changed. <laughs> but uh, I'll say that that was the first moment in my life that those things were pointed out. That was the first moment in my life where I realized that there was some places where I really needed to grow. And I'm thankful. Maybe you've had something similar happen to you. I, I hope so. Because those things are good for us. We need people who love us enough to tell us hard truths so that we can grow. And that's precisely the motivation behind our passage this morning. James is speaking to Christians primarily in this text. People who he calls my fellow believers. People who he loves. People who he calls throughout this book. He says, my brothers, my sisters. He's addressing anybody who would consider themselves a follower of Christ. But he's got tough words. He says some things that sting. But ultimately, if we're willing to listen to them this morning, these are things that are going to help us grow. If we're willing to listen, these are things that are going to make us more like Christ. So today as we study this passage, that's what I want us to do. I want us to let James sit us down and tell us what's wrong with us. How God responds to us and what comes next. What's wrong with us, how God responds to us, and what comes next. Let's start with that first one. It's a big one. What is wrong with us? I don't know if you heard as John Michael was reading it, but we had some pretty good quarantine passages, quarantine verses in this passages, right? There's a verse eight. It says, wash your hands, you sinners. <laughs> That's a good memory verse, right? Let's uh, write that down. Stick it on, the, on a post-it note on the bathroom mirror. Another good one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? I'll tell you what, after two months in a house with four kids and a big dog, it seems like the answer to that question is being awake, <laughs> breathing oxygen. We have had lots of opportunity for bickering around our household. But in times like these, we need to be careful. I think we can become a little too lenient with ourselves when our circumstances change. We put too much blame on the environment around us, right? We excuse our moodiness because, well, you know, times are tough. We're all cooped up in the house. The world's in chaos. Of course, there's going to be some explosions every now and then. But James is not having it. He says, point blank, it is not your circumstances that cause quarreling. It's you. Verse 2, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. That might be a bitter pill to swallow, that the problems are inside of you, but we know it's true, don't we? We know that within each of us, there is this constant urge to live for ourselves, to get what we want, to demand things, to coerce, to manipulate, to get our own way, to scheme, to bully, to be passive-aggressive. We want to live as if we are the only one on earth who matters, as if we're the center of the universe. Now, of course, we're not conscious of that all the time, right? We don't wake up saying, today I'm going to get things the way I want them or else. No, we don't think it that plainly. But it gets exposed when our desires get blocked, right? When there's something that we want that we cannot have, when somebody or someone gets in our way, those are the moments... James says, when we quarrel and we fight and we kill. And not just kill literally. Now, that's certainly in view here, but he's, he's, he's talking about it the way Jesus talked about it, right? That we kill people with our words. That we kill people with our anger. That we kill people in our hearts. Remember here, James's main audience is the church. He is talking to people who claim to follow Jesus. People who have given their hearts and their lives to Jesus. The one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So let me ask you, what does it mean when we worship the Prince of Peace on Sunday, but we live in explosive anger the rest of the week. When we worship and we pray to the one who taught us to love our neighbor on the weekend, but at home we are always thinking of our own needs first. Well, here's what James says it means. Verse 4, he starts off by saying, You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Adulterous. That's, that's a pretty strong word. There was a survey a while back. I think it was done by the Pew Research Center. It was about the general morality in the United States. And it was comparing it to some of the Christian worldview. And whenever you see these things, uh, over time, you kind of expect that the general moral feelings of the population at large is kind of slowly drifting away from a general Christian morality, right? The overlap becomes less and less. But when asked about this question, when asked about adultery, it was amazing. Still today, the vast 
majority of the population, something like 90%, said that adultery is wrong. That if you have made a solemn vow, a promise, a covenant to another person to give your life, to give your body to them for the rest of your life, and then you go and sleep with another person, that's wrong. Everyone agrees that that act exposes this two-faced duplicity. It exposes the people's hearts. And, and that act, it deals so much pain to the other party that you don't have to be a devoutly religious person to understand that it's wrong. It's instinctive. We know that it's wrong. An adulterous heart, James is saying here, it's, it's so destructive. It's something that is almost universally despised. And Scripture says, an adulterer, that's a picture of us when we are clinging to our own rightness. When we are clinging to our own sovereignty, our own rule and reign over our lives. When we're clinging to our own control. When we wound and we damage others so that we can get our own way. When we do that, we show that the only one we really love and worship is not the God who we profess to serve. It's ourselves. He says, when we live that way, we are spiritual adulterers. And then he goes even further. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Adulterers and enemies. So let me ask you, if you were to give an honest assessment of your life this week, the way you lived, the way you treated other people around you, the way you spent your time, to whom does your heart truly belong? Is it the Lord? Or is it to yourself? Is it to the things in this world that you want? I'll tell you, as I have read and studied this passage this week, it has been deeply convicting to me. It's reminded me that the things we take lightly, the things we minimize, the things that we excuse in our lives, God takes very seriously. When we live for this world, God says we are nothing short of adulterers and enemies of God. That's what's wrong with us. So how does God respond to us in that place? This is the second question we're looking at. 
How does God respond? We're using harsh language here. These are tough words. Adultery. Enmity. But what James is explaining here is foundational to the Christian view of the world, right? This is what we believe. We believe that all human beings exist to love God. Our purpose on earth is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When we live for the world, we are enemies of God. But, Scripture also tells us, you remember Romans 5? It says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. The Gospel message is a beautiful story of God's rescue mission. It is this story that, that God came to earth and he died in the place of his enemies. You and I. So that we could know what we're really made for. Scripture tells us our sin had blinded us and brainwashed us so that the very thing we were made for, loving God, enjoying Him, was the one thing we fought against and did not want. But He broke the power of sin on the cross. And by His Spirit, He now awakens our souls so that we can come back to Him. We can desire Him. We can finally do what we were made to do. We can be satisfied in Him forever. Don't you see, what, what God has done for us is greater than the greatest love story that you could possibly imagine. Yes, amen. Right, think of all those movies. All those movies where the hero rescues the damsel in distress. What about The Princess Bride? I'm sure most of us have seen that. Now what if at the end of that story, after the hero has spent the entire movie trying to rescue Buttercup, what if they're, as they're riding off, she instead says, You know what? I think I'd like to go back to the evil king. It doesn't make any sense, right? But, in a sense, that's our story. We have been miraculously rescued. But with our adulterous hearts, we, God's ransomed, redeemed people, we walk right back to our captor. We turn away from God's rule in our lives because we think that we're going to be happier somewhere else. So how does God, who has gone to these enormous lengths to rescue us, how does he respond when we go back to our old ways? Does he reject us forever? Does he 
stamp the scarlet letter on us? Say that we're adulterers? Does he tell us never to come back? Well, here's what verse 6 says. He gives us more grace. But he gives us more grace. Wow. There's a beautiful picture of this aspect of God's heart in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Hosea. It's one of the small, minor prophet books. And in that book, God instructs his prophet, Hosea, to go and marry an unfaithful woman because he said it's a picture of his love for his people. Hosea 1, verse 2, it says, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And as you read the next few chapters, you find that although Hosea is faithful to this woman, she's not faithful to him. She sleeps around, perhaps even becoming a prostitute. And she goes so far, she falls so far, that she ends up at the point where she is owned by another man. She is enslaved and broken down. And in that place, God speaks to Hosea again. And he says, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Whenever I read this passage, I can't help but imagine what that moment would have been like for Gomer, Hosea's wife. To have been in this rock-bottom place where she had completely rejected the man who had loved her, who had cared for her, who had been faithful to her, and she had gone her own way to the point where her life was lost, where she had no hope. She was cut off from her family. She was in debt that she could never pay. And then for her to hear one day that slave master come in and declare, you're free to go. What would it have been? What would it have been like for her to realize it was Hosea? This man who she had despised, who she had mistreated, and then to see him and for him to say, you're free. Come home. I love you. Those are God's words for you today. No matter where you've been, by the power of Christ's blood, you have been bought 
with a price. You have been set free. You have been redeemed. Your sin is no small matter. But he gives more grace. That's how God responds. So what comes next? What comes next? Well, in Hosea, he speaks to his wife and he says, You are to live with me many days, but you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will have the same way towards you. He says, come home, but this time be faithful, and I will be faithful to you as well. In James, we find a very similar instruction. After we find out that God still has grace for us adulterous sinners, here's what he says. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Those verses, that's a picture of what true repentance looks like for us. This is what comes next. When we come to the place where we recognize God's abundant grace for us, that he gives us more grace. What comes next is this. It's broken down here in three words. One, submit. Submit to God in humility. God opposes the proud. But he gives favor to the humble. That means... When it comes to us living holy lives, there is no sense in us being proud. There's no sense in us pretending that we can do it on our own. We have to surrender. We gotta stop trying to make ourselves better so that God will want to welcome us back. We gotta stop trying to earn it, but instead we have to submit. We've gotta come to God in weakness with empty hands and ask him to give us his spirit. Give us the power that we don't have. Right? Verse 2, it says the reason we don't have is because we don't ask. We try to do everything in our own strength. But the first step for us is to bow down in front of him and do the one thing we can't do. Ask him to give us a brand new heart. The first word is submit. The second word is resist. Resist the devil. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. That's the way James puts it. And what he means there is, in our daily battle with sin, 
Every day, we, we have a battle with sin. Every day, we have a battle with temptation. And he says, when we are in that battle, we have to fight back. We have to resist. We can't be passive about it. We've got to build up our defenses. You've got to prepare yourself for the attack that is certainly coming. Right? We've seen those zombie movies, right? Who are the people that live? It's the people that get ready. It's the people who take the attack seriously. The ones that, that nail the boards over the windows. Who turn out all the lights. Who, who get quiet. Who get prepared. I once had a friend say to me that it is not enough for Christians to just have negative feelings about their sin. It's not enough for us to say that we hate our sin, to really dislike our sin. He said, every single addict wants to quit when they come down from their last high. There's a sense that we all loathe our sin when we're guilty of it. But he says it's not enough to hate your sin in those moments where you're thinking clearly. We've got to fight back. We've got to prepare for the moment of temptation. We've got to be ready for the fight when we aren't thinking clearly. We have to get ready so that when temptation does come, we have strength to resist. Because there is a promise here, right? If you resist, he will flee. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But how do we do that? How do we find the strength to resist? How do we fight back in those moments of greatest temptation? How do we get prepared before the attack comes? And that's the, the great thing in this passage. That's the glorious invitation that James leads, leaves us with, with this last word, this third word. He says, come near. In fact, say that, everybody at home, say that with me. Come near. Come near. <laughs> he says, come near to God, and God will come near to you. Amen. See, the only way to prepare yourself for the battle... The only way to be strong enough to run away when you're being pursued by temptation. The only way you're going to find the strength you need to hold your tongue when all you want to do is fight back. The only way you're going to be able to close that browser window when you want to go look at something you know is no good for you. The only way you're going to be able to Avoid spending that money you know you don't have. Or put down that bottle. Or offer someone love in a moment of anger. The only way you can do those things is if you are near to God. It's if you're near to God. It's if your relationship with God is not just a distant memory or a bunch of theological facts that you know, or some dry religion that you practice. You need to be near the living God. 
You need to know your loving Father, Jesus, your Redeemer, His Holy Spirit, your Protector, your Deliverer, your Helper, your Advocate. God is real. God is, is, is near. And if in that moment of temptation, if he is real to you, if he is near to your life, when that temptation comes, you're not just going to be turning away from a bad thing that hurts you. You are going to be turning towards a perfect God who loves you. And who promises that he will satisfy whatever it is that temptation is promising. Let's not rest past this verse. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. He will come near to you. Do you know this is the one thing Satan does not want you to believe today? He does not want you to believe that God desires to draw near to you this morning. He wants you to believe that God is holding a grudge against you. He wants you to believe that if you were to draw near to him, what you would hear is, uh-uh, buddy, not this time. No way, sister. Fool me once. I'm not falling for that again. I've been hurt too many times. But Scripture says, a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. He will never turn away. A repentant heart that draws near to him. Today, this day, the one thing that you and I need more than anything else is to come near to God. And for so many of us, I worry that, that what we call a relationship with God is really just life on autopilot. I'm really concerned that, that what we call a relationship with God is barely even a ritual. I heard one pastor put it like this, but imagine it this way. Imagine that I woke up and I said to Melissa, my wife, Melissa, you're really great. You know, I like you a lot and you've really done some wonderful things for me over the years. And now that I've said that, here's a list of things I'd like you to do for me. So if you could get to work on those things, I'd really appreciate it. And I'll circle back and I'll probably talk to you again before I go to bed if I'm not too tired. Ridiculous, right? It's absurd. But doesn't that pretty much describe what most Christians call a relationship with God? Some short prayer in the morning? Maybe some Bible reading? If that, let's be honest. But James, he gives us this wonderful invitation, not to a ritual, but to someone who is real. He says, draw near to God. Come near to God. Don't just find a Bible reading plan. 
Don't just go to church once a week. Draw near. Come near. Bring your whole heart, your mind, your soul into the presence of God and be still. Throughout the day, offer every thought to him. Walk with him. Converse with him. Have a conversation with him. Come near because your God will come near to you. He is longing to be with you. He wants to be with you. You, you specifically, he wants to be with you so much that he came to earth. He died for you. He gave his life for you. He claimed you as his own. And it is absurd then to think that after all of that, he all of a sudden wouldn't want to hear from you. Our God is the same God from the book of Hosea. The God who in the midst of our wandering and adultery says to us, I will go again and I will love her. I will love him. He's always pursuing. Always working. Never failing. And so my final word to you this morning is, is simply this. Do not squander the gift we have been given in this time of quarantine. Do not spend it being content and dismissive in your sin. Do not excuse your adulterous heart. Now those words may sting, but they are spoken in love. Don't treat these days like any other. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And most of all, find a way today to get into the presence of God. To regularly draw near to him in this season. So that when we finally get out of quarantine, when we're finally able to leave our homes and, and come back here together, we can say honestly that you have come near to God and that God is near to you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amen.